The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. If I were to ask for a show of hands, uh, for all of us who were not born into Buddhism, how many of us came to Buddhism because of the meditation, I think I'd get most of the room, right? If I were you get my hand too. Uh, if I were to ask how many people came because of the teachings on generosity, I don't think I'd get a hand. <laughs> but that's the topic of today's talk, generosity. Um, I think the reason we don't regard this as one of the big magnets to the practice is that we see generosity, the act of giving, as a generic virtue. It's something that we see in human society all over the world. We've seen it for a long time. One of the stock phrases in the typical Dana talk is that Dana, or, or the act of giving, is a 2,500-year-old tradition. And that's not true. It goes way back to the beginning of human society. This is what human society is all about. So we learn to give to one another. And for this reason, we've we generally assume that when the Buddha is talking about giving, he's talking about something very generic, something we already know, we don't need to hear about it again. Um, but it turns out that that's not the case. He had very specific teachings on generosity and teachings that relate very directly to the meditation practice, to the way we, um, the attitude we bring to the practice and the understanding that we bring to the practice to begin with. And it turns out that in the Buddhist time, the topic of generosity was very controversial, which means that he had to think very carefully about it as he was going to um, present it to people. The controversy basically was this. Um, the Brahmins, who were one of the dominant religious castes in India at the time, had a very strong teaching that generosity was a good thing, specifically if it was directed to Brahmins. <laughs> you give to us, you get a lot of merit. That was their teaching. And... Um, and I know that here in the West, occasionally we hear horror stories about Dana talks, but they had some of the most horrible Dana talks you can imagine. One was in a uh, ceremony that you would do for your dead ancestors, dedicating merit to them. And at the end of the ceremony, the Brahmins would then turn to you and say, okay, now that we've done the ceremony for you, we are now speaking in the voice of your dead ancestors. Give more. It's not enough. They would give, and this is written into the ceremony, whatever the people gave. The Brahmins would say, it's not enough, you have to give more, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're you know, cold, whatever, where we are in this other world. So they really squeezed the generosity out of everybody else. So what, of course, this meant was that there was a reaction over time. Um, some of the contemplative orders began to say, well, really, this, this, this teaching on generosity is a lot of crock. There's nothing really virtuous about it. And their arguments came in two forms. One was the idea that Generosity is really not fruitful. There's no, there are no benefits that come from being generous. This was because when people die, they just go like that. There's nothing left aside from the physical elements. And so a gift to a person who goes is um, <laughs> it's not very fruitful. Secondly, um, another argument against the, the idea that giving was generous or giving with generosity was virtuous was that people don't have free will. Whatever you do, you do because you're compelled to do it. It's either written into the, into the stars or written into fate. So that, say, when a mother gives to her child, it's not out of any particular love or pretend, particular virtue on her part. It's simply that she has to give. It's written into the, into the script. And so the Buddha, when he came out and said, okay, generosity is real, he's basically taking a stand on two things. In fact, this is how he introduced his teaching on karma 
his teaching on causality was by saying that gifts are real. Gifts are fruit. He's saying that they are fruitful and it's a result of free will. So he's saying that you, there is a benefit that comes from being generous and a large part of the benefit is derived from the fact that you are free to choose to give or not to give. In fact, I would say that it's probably one of our first experiences of freedom as children is that very first time when we gave something that we didn't have to give. It wasn't a Christmas, it wasn't bar mitzvah, it wasn't birthdays, it was you had something that you wanted to share with someone else and you just went ahead and shared it, even though you knew you could have used it yourself. You went ahead and, and gave it. And so that is our first taste of freedom and that's one of the most important things that the Buddha is trying to emphasize in his teachings on, on giving is that you have freedom of choice to give or not to give, so that when you do give, you realize it's coming from the heart rather than from some external compulsion. And when the Buddha talked about uh, generosity or the act of giving, both in the way he taught it and what he taught emphasized these principles of freedom and fruitfulness. In terms of the how he taught about it or the way he taught about it, he would never appeal to his authority. He didn't say, you have to give because I say so, because after all, who was the Buddha? He was a human being. He wasn't a god. He wasn't a lawmaker. He didn't create us, and therefore he has no power to tell us that what we have to do and what we don't have to do. Secondly, he doesn't say that there's any obligation aside from your uh, debt to your parents. He would never say that you are obliged to give to anyone. You do have to do something to repay your debt to your parents, but otherwise you're not obliged to give it to anybody. In this way, he did the Brahmins one better, because he didn't people would accuse him of saying, well, we hear the Buddha says, you know, give only to the Buddhists and don't give to anybody else. And the Buddha said, that's not true. King Basenade one time came to the Buddha and asked, where should a gift be given? And the Buddha said, wherever you feel inspired. I know shoulds at all, where you want to give. Um, and so in this case, the way he taught showed that he was really emphasizing freedom. He wasn't putting any pressure on anybody at all. He did say, however, in order because he had no authority over us, his appeal to us as to why we should give is to point out that it is fruitful, it is beneficial to give. In this case, he's appealing to our quality of heedfulness, realizing that our actions do shape our lives. So we've got to be very careful. If we act in an unskillful way, we're shaping a pretty miserable life. If we act in a skillful way, we're shaping a much better kind of life. And this, this connects to another important teaching, which is that, as the Buddha said, all skillful qualities of the mind come from heedfulness. They don't come from any innate goodness in us or innate badness. He didn't talk about innate goodness or badness. But the reason why we put in the effort to be skillful is because we realize that if we aren't skillful, we're going to suffer down the line. We're going to suffer now, we're going to suffer down the line. If we are skillful, we and the people around us will experience happiness. So there's a connection here between the fruitfulness of the giving and the freedom to give. The logical connection is that it's fruitful because we are free to give. If we weren't free to give, it wouldn't, it, there would be no fruit to our action because it would have been built into the way society is or the way the universe is. And our act of giving would not make any difference. Psychologically, the connection is that a gift is more fruitful when you enjoy giving. And it's in that case, when you feel free to give, you're a lot happier than when you feel that you were compelled to give. When you, when you wanted to share your lollipop with your brother or your sister, as opposed to when your mother said, hey, now share the lollipops. Okay. Okay. You felt happier when you did it simply out of the freedom of your own will. So the important, some important consequences of the way the Buddha taught. Um, 
He points out one that when the Buddha is teaching this way, that he's encouraging us to think about the good results that come from the act of giving, both the way we feel good and also the impact that we can see on the world around us. He's not, obviously not encouraging us to make, uh, have any passive acceptance simply of the way things are. He's pointing out the fact that you can change the world around you through the goodness of your heart, and it has an important impact. All too often, if we come to meditation or come to the practice through hearing about practices where you get to the point where you do simply watch things as they arise and pass away, we tend to think that's the whole teaching. But it's not. It's one phase of the teaching. It's within a context of if you can make things better, you go ahead and you make them better. It's only when you can't make them better that you learn to watch them and learn how to accept them. So equanimity is a means to the end. It's one of our skills that we develop, but it's not the whole story. There are times when we can make a difference, we realize we can, we go ahead and we do it. Um, so he's saying that you can shape your world through the goodness of your heart. In doing this, you develop a healthy sense of self, that you're not just here as a weight on the world or that you are incapacitated. And he's also encouraging you to see that skillfulness is a fabricated thing. You have to put energy into it. This is why gratitude is so highly encouraged in the Buddhist tradition. You see that other people do skillful things, you should be grateful for the effort that goes into it so that you can then feel more, more motivated to do that kind of skillfulness yourself. There's one passage where he says, the sign of a good person is gratitude, i.e. you appreciate the effort that other people do go to in being generous, you appreciate the effort they go to in being virtuous. And that's a sign that you yourself will probably start wanting to be virtuous or want to be generous as well, because you see the good consequences that come from it. That's the how in the Buddhist teachings on generosity. I'd like to focus a little now on the what. When the Buddha talks about dana, D-A-N-A, -A, um, he's not just talking about material objects. The word dana means giving. Now the gift, it can also mean the gift of dharma or what he calls also the gift of safety. I.e., when you make a vow to yourself that you're not going to kill anybody, as he says, you're giving a gift of safety to everybody. It's an unlimited gift. If you decide that no matter who, no matter what, even termites, even bears, whatever, I'm not going to kill them. Um, you're giving a gift of safety to all beings. And when you give a gift of safety to all beings, you get a share in that unlimited gift of safety as well. Another form of giving is the gift of helpfulness. When you see someone else has a project that needs help, you pitch in and help. That, all, that too is a kind of giving. The commentaries add two other kinds of giving. One is the gift of knowledge. You have some knowledge about something, you see somebody else needs it, you're happy to share it. And then there's the gift of forgiveness, which of all the gifts is probably the most difficult, even though it doesn't cost anything at all. Um, but it costs a lot, for, for some reason, in terms of our psychic, <laughs> our psychic issues. But this, too, is a gift. You're not going to hold any grudges against people. You're not going to try to get revenge for what they've done in the past. You freely give them. The whole point about this is dana is not just material wealth, does not, deals not much just in material wealth, but also deals in inner wealth. And this is an important part of the, the teaching on dana, which is it creates a sense of being wealthy. Even though material you may not have much, still you have these other qualities that you can freely give. And it's good to have that sense that you know I have more than I need, I have enough to share. That in and of itself creates a strong sense of well-being, a sense of happiness. And this feeds into what the Buddha said are the six factors of a very fruitful gift. 
I'll go down the list of six because that's going to be the structure of the rest of the talk, which is um, three factors have to do with the donor. In other words, before giving, you are glad that you're going to give. While giving, you're inspired. You feel happy, you feel clear-minded. And then when you've given, afterwards you look back on the gift and you feel a sense of gratif gratification. You're glad that you did that. Any act, any act of giving that has th these three factors is going to be very fruitful. Now, there are three other factors that are the responsibility of the recipient. I.e., the recipient has to either be free of passion or working on it, free of aversion or working on it, or free from delusion or working on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. And when you give to someone of that nature, okay, you look back on the gift. Of course, you're going to feel glad that you did it, right? That you gave it to somebody who, who is uh, admirable and someone whose um, lifestyle or light way of living you find inspiring. When I first read it, I thought, thought, okay, the first three factors, being glad before, inspired during, and gratified afterwards, those are the responsibility of the donor. And the, the, the working on the greed, aversion, and illusion, that's the responsibility of the recipient. But the more I think, I've been thinking about this, the more I realize that this is a shared responsibility. In other words, the recipient has to act in such a way that the donor is going to feel glad, inspired, and gratified afterwards. And the donor has the responsibility to look for somebody, who am I going to give this to that I really will feel gratified afterwards? So I better look for somebody I find you know, that I respect. So the act does feel inspiring. So, um, <clears throat> so when the Buddha was teaching on generosity, he would also try to emphasize factors of arranging a culture of giving, a culture of dana, that would encourage fruitful gifts like this. To begin with, he would talk many times about the benefits of giving, so as to make you glad before you give. That, okay, I want to have some of those benefits myself. Here's a chance to give. He talks about the different kinds of motivation. Um, and it goes all the way up. And these are skillful motivations. The, the, the least skillful of the skillful ones is, I'm going to get this back with interest. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, kind of like the bank of Buddhism. Okay? Uh, <laughs> Either, either benefits that come now or benefits that will come into the future. And he talks about not only a better rebirth, but also in this lifetime, people respect you more if you're generous. When you go into a group of people, you go in with a greater sense of self-confidence. Because people know that you've been generous, and they will respect you for that. Um, he was also very clear that the gift that you would give was not supposed to be a, a repayment for services already rendered. In that case, it's not really a gift, it's just a payment. Or it's not a prepayment for services you're going to expect out of that person. And this is one of the reasons why they were very clear on the fact that when a monk or a nun was teaching, they were not supposed to teach for any material um, payback. Um, in the Buddha's own time, there were, there were two cases in the canon that I've been able to trace where after he gave a teaching, someone came up and said, okay, here's your teacher's fee. Usually it would be food. Um, and the Buddha said, okay... Um, the Tagadas do not take teacher's fee. You know, take that food and throw it away on the barren ground or into water where no living beings are because there's nobody you can feed on that, i.e., any, any sense that you would pay the Buddha to teach. Um, the food is so tainted that nobody can eat it. <laughs> you have to throw it away. Um, think about that. <laughs> I read someone who, uh, a person whose background is in the Tibetan tradition where they do pay their teachers who was writing on this particular pa aspect, and she said, this is a very troubling passage. 
And uh, she says, and we can't come to any firm conclusion about what they what they were thinking back in those days, but they were very alive to the issue, whatever that means. I don't know. I think it's very clear that it was that you don't pay people to teach. Um, this is common in the Thai forest tradition, which is that when um, I saw this many times with my own teacher, people would come to him after he'd given them some advice for either their meditation or for their day-to-day life. They'd followed his advice, they'd gotten good results. They would come back and they'd say, how can we ever repay you? And his statement always was, be serious about the practice, be intent on the practice. That's how you repay your teacher, is by really doing the practice. This was, um, in fact, one of the Buddha's last statements before he passed away. There was a, a period when the devas were coming and they were raining flowers down on his body and they were singing songs and playing music and dropping incense all over the place. Quite a scene, can you imagine? <laughs> and he, for those who couldn't see all this happening, he noted to his, one of his followers, he said, okay, the devas are doing this. He says, but that's not how the Tathagata is respected. Or that's not how you pay homage to the Tathagata. The way you do that is, the way you tr- show true respect is by practicing the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. You take the Dharma that he taught, and you practice it with the intention that he had for it, which is that you put an end to suffering. So the the practice here, or the repayment of the teacher, is in the, in the fact that you actually put your heart into practicing. Um, the arrangement that they had for the monks and nuns was that not so much that you would pay them for teaching. Gifts to the monks and nuns were not a payment for teaching. They were just in respect and hopefully to support them in their practice. You see someone who is practicing, you want to support that practice because you feel it's a good thing for the world to have people who are practicing. Now for the monks and nuns, they're encouraged to practice as seriously as possible so that the one, as my teacher used to say, you don't get reborn as a water buffalo. <laughs> to have to till the fields to pay, repay from, for all that food you've been eating. And, and secondly, that if you do gain attainments in the practice, then the, gift that you've been, the gifts that have been given to you are going to bear great fruit for the donors. That, you know, by, by seriously practicing, that's how you repay your donors. Oftentimes I found this a real incentive in my practice in Thailand. I'd be going on my alms round, and this one couple in particular, I remember, it was newly married, very poor. They lived in this tiny little grass shack, which I could hardly see how two people could fit in that grass shack, much much less do anything else. They had a kitchen out back. But every now and then I'd walk past, and either the husband or the wife would come running up with a little piece of dried fish or a little piece of sausage or something to put in my bowl. And I'd go back and I'd eat it and I'd say, you better practice really hard today. <laughs> when you're the beneficiary of a poor person's generosity, it really, really hits, hits home. Okay. So, so the Buddha would teach in order to remind you, to induce this sense of gladness before you give the gift, is to remind you of the many ways you'd benefit. So as I said earlier, the, the lowest level of benefits that you would look for is that you're going to get this back with interest. A higher motivation to make you glad is that you don't feel right that when you have something and other people are poor, that you just let them be poor. You want them, you want to share. A higher motivation than that is that it just feels good inside to be generous. A higher motivation than that is that it makes, it makes you, um, it inspires you yeah, further in the practice. Once you've given something, you feel more inspired and that encourages you in your practice even further. So these are some of the various ways you can think about the act of giving to make you feel glad about giving beforehand. While you're giving, there's a strong um, 
recommendation that you give with respect. You don't just toss things away as if you're throwing them away. There's one case of a king who went to see one of the Buddha's followers one time and was converted to having respect for the monks and nuns. And so he told one of his servants, okay, go out and give gifts to the monks and nuns every day. But the food that the king had prepared was the worst food in the palace. And the whole thing seemed to the, the servant who was giving it away. He said, this is like the king is just throwing this stuff away. And so he would make this vow. While he was putting the food in the, in the monk's bowls, he said, okay, through this, I'm doing this act together with the king in this lifetime, but I don't want to be his, any, have anything to do with his king in a future lifetime. Of course, word of this gets back to the king. <laughs> and so he calls the servant and says, why did you say that? He said, well, look at the way you give. It's the worst food. It's the worst stuff. I mean, stuff you wouldn't even want to touch with your foot, much less, you know, consume yourself. And so what kind of you know, uh, good results are going to come from a gift like that? And so the king changed his mind. He said, okay, let's give him good food and let's do it with respect. And the king would go out and he would give with his own hand. And that, of course, when you give something with respect, you feel inspired by your own action and the person who's receiving it, of course, feels more inspired by your action as well. As for gratification after the act of giving, the Buddha would encourage you that, okay, if you want the act to have a great deal of merit, okay, you do look for a recipient that you respect, someone you feel is going to use your, use, your, um, use your arms well. In fact, there's a rule now that we have in the monks that if someone says, where should I give this gift? You always say, give where you feel inspired or where you feel it would be well used or well cared for. That's it. That's all we're allowed to say. Another way of um, guaranteeing that you look back at the gift with gratification is the Buddha's encouragement that you don't give till it hurts. Okay. So you give in a way that doesn't adversely affect yourself, doesn't adversely affect anybody else. So he's not saying just give till it hurts. And the other way of encouraging that, that it, the gift would be looked back in, in with a sense of gratification is you try to give what's called a timely gift, i.e. you... You look at what the person needs and you give something in line with what the person needs right now. Um, sometimes you see this issue in, in places where the, the act of giving has become a little bit more ceremonial. Um, people will give what they want to get back, which I call the postman theory. Um, <laughs> especially sometimes when people are giving gifts for uh, uh, relatives who have passed away, and what they will give is the kind of food that that relative liked. I don't know how many times I've received that kind of gift. So I feel like I'm a postman. Um, but other times, and this was an incident I saw, I saw in Thailand. Um, after my teacher passed away, we'd have a yearly commemoration of his death. And part of the commemoration was that we would invite some monks in to chant and then give them gifts. That year, it was my turn to go out and choose the gifts. So we went downtown and we chose some really nice liquid detergent and a nice bar of Neutrogena soap and a nice little stainless steel bowl for, them, for it to go in, and lots of really other nice little things for the monks, which I thought the monks would appreciate. But it was a little package, only about yay big. Okay. I get back to the monastery, and some people come from Bangkok and say, okay, where are the gifts for the monks? So I point out our little line of gifts. They say, oh, that's too small. They say, but it's nice stuff. It doesn't matter whether it's nice stuff. We want big gifts to be impressive. So they went out and they got a large set of, you know, uh, toilet paper <laughs> and a huge and a huge box of fab, um, and that was for them was a satisfying gift, um, giving as a show. Okay. So the Buddha says, but if you really want to look back on the gift with a sense of gratification, you try to figure out what does this person really need 
and you make that effort, and then you give that kind of gift. Now, the duties of the recipient are, number one, you don't put any pressure on the donors. There's a, uh, there's a phrase that says you don't do any hinting, you don't do any scheming, you don't do any belittling. Now, you say, well, how, would, how would you get someone to give a bit, gift by belittling them? Is you would say, I don't think you have enough wealth to give this gift. You know? And that's, that's a really foul way of trying to get a gift out of somebody. And so the monks are not allowed to do any of that. When you give talks on dana, you either give a talk in a general way, like today's talk, or you give it after the gift has been given. This is called an anamodana, in which you are rejoicing afterwards with the generosity that's already been showed. You don't give a dana talk right before people are going to give their gift. In this way, you're showing trust in the people. And this is an important part about these mutual responsibilities of the, of the donor and the recipient. You have to trust each other. And the one who you're showing trust in the recipient, you're showing trust in the general principle of karma, that okay, whatever your needs are, all you have to do is keep practicing and the, the needs will be met. So you don't have to go sort of fishing for donations from people. In the same way, that this also adds to the donor's sense of gladness and gratification that the donor feels trusted. No pressure is being put on the donor, so there's no underlying implication that you don't trust the donor to give enough, so you've got to push them somehow. And that sense of mutual trust is an important point, part of the whole transaction. Another duty of the recipient is that when you are receiving a gift, you're appreciative. Whether you want the gift or not, you show appreciation for the fact that the person went out of his, his or her way to do this. And then finally, you use the gift in an upright way. So that you know, the person who gave the gift doesn't come back to the monastery and find that it's being used as a doorstop someplace. And you, try to, and, you, and you yourself behave in an upright way. Word gets out that the monks are misbehaving. It's, oh my gosh, I fed those monks. Ah, who wants to feed monks like that? So it's our responsibility, as I said, to, to behave in an upright manner. So what you see here is um, the, the large emphasis is on the mindset of the donor, that you're trying to create a certain attitude in the donor um, the primary one is the sense of you trust the people that you're giving to and you have a sense of being trusted by your recipients. And nobody's pushing you, nobody's putting any pressure on you. It's a sign that they trust you to figure out what needs to be done and that they trust you to decide for yourself how much should or should not be given. So there's a sense of sort of mutual connection that comes from the practice of giving in this way, that both sides are looking after their responsibilities. And doing so, you have this, it creates a more porous sense of boundaries between you and the people who are, you're supporting. You see that your own happiness and the happiness of other people is connected. This falls into that, there's a famous analogy that the Buddha gives of two acrobats. You've got one acrobat standing on the other acrobat's shoulders. And the teacher who's standing on the knee says to his assistant, okay, now you look out after me and I'll look out after you, and that way we'll both come down safely. And she, she the assistant standing on his shoulder, says, no, that's not going to work. I have to look after myself, but in doing so, that's going to help you too. And that's by looking after your, your well-being and being a generous person, of course, you are looking after the well-being of others. In the case of the acrobats, you maintain your balance, makes it easier for the other person to maintain his or her balance. So there's no clear line between, okay, that there's no idea, let's say, that happiness is a zero-sum game, that the more you have, the less somebody else has to have. 
In this case, you look for ways of creating happiness where the happiness spreads around. You feel a sense of gratification, a sense of gladness and being generous. The other person benefits as well. When you're a recipient, you behave in a particular way so that the other person will also benefit. The donors will benefit too. If you come to meditation with this kind of attitude, you see the act of practicing more as just an extension of generosity. Because after all, when you're working on your greed, aversion, and delusion, you're not the only person who's benefiting. You go home, you have less greed, less aversion, less delusion. Everybody else at home is going to benefit from that fact. So in this way, meditation is a kind of generosity as well. So that's, there's that sense of connectedness that comes. You feel less lonely coming into the meditation. You feel less, less a victim of things. You feel, and the fact that you have found generosity, found happiness in being generous, makes you trust other people who are generous more as well. If you've never been generous, and someone comes up to you and they give you a gift, what is your reaction? You don't trust them. Say, so what does this person want out of me? Because you and yourself have never seen the gratification that comes from being generous. But if you've found that gratification yourself, when someone else comes to be generous with you, there's a greater sense of trust. This creates the basis for what the Buddha said is admirable friendship. Which uh, you probably heard the, that famous quote where Ananda comes up and says to the Buddha, having admirable friends, having admirable friendship is half of the practice. And the Buddha says, no, it's not half, it's the whole of the practice. If you don't have someone, an admirable friend, who's going to point out the way to you for you to practice? And if, you're, if they point out the way but you don't trust them, how are you going to accept that? So by learning how to define joy in generosity and joy in the other, other virtues that the Buddha recommends, makes you appreciate the fact that, yes, this, people really can be made happiness by being generous, so you're more open to other people's generosity. This creates the basis for an admirable friendship. Two other qualities that are brought to the meditation as a result of meditation, a um, result of the practice of generosity, is that you have a greater sense of being proactive in creating happiness. It means you're coming to the practice. Many times people come to meditation, you know, they're psychologically wounded, they feel very lonely, they feel victimized. Um, it's because they haven't been generous. If you learn how to be generous, you come with a greater sense that, okay, there are things I can do here, there are things that I can offer to the practice. And so when things aren't going well in the practice, you say, okay, what am I not giving to the practice yet? Maybe I need to give more time, maybe I need to give more patience. The emphasis is more on, okay, when something's not going well, what do I give? in order to make it go well. Like when your breath is not feeling comfortable. Even though they tell you, just let the breath be, maybe you could sneak in and say, let's try a, a more comfortable breath. See what that does to settle things down. And then finally, it brings this sense of freedom. Okay, you, you give your gifts out of a sense of freedom. You appreciate that sense of freedom that comes from that. And this is where the Buddha wants you to look more and more. Is this, this, this point of freedom in the present moment where you have the choice to do one thing or another. Because it's looking at that moment of freedom, looking at that aspect of freedom, that you will work your way to higher freedoms. Because you start looking around, okay, what is the intention that goes with that freedom? How do I understand this intention? How do I make this intention more skillful? And as you act more and more on skillful intentions, your sense of freedom grows. And it's through looking at that moment in the mind where these choices are being made, that's, that's where the, the deathless finally opens up when you realize that you are free to make a choice that you may not have, may not have realized before. So you're exploring your freedom of choice, and that's how the ultimate freedom is found. And it starts by that moment of freedom when you say, I'd like to give a gift. 
to so-and-so. I'd like to give this to so-and-so. Rather than eating it myself, I'll give it to someone else. Rather than using it myself, I'll give it to somebody else. And I'll find happiness in that, that choice, happiness in that act of freedom. So these are the qualities. This is what's distinctively Buddhist about the way the Buddha taught. The topic of generosity is on these three qualities of mind that should be generated through the practice of giving. And in the, the sort of the culture of giving that the Buddha developed, he develops it in such a way that there's no pressure put on the donor, so the donor will feel glad beforehand, inspired during, and gratified afterwards. And when the recipients are, are called on to behave in such a way as to encourage those attitudes in the donor as well. So the donor learns to be more proactive in creating happiness, have a greater sense of trust in the teacher, and also a sense of being trusted by others. And through developing this sense of being proactive and being trusted, it, it, it expands the range of freedom that you can find in the practice and find in your mind. So those are some of my thoughts on generosity and the act of giving today. I was wondering if there are any questions. Yes. So if one determines how one wants to give in life generally, and then you go to the supermarket or you're on the street and you're confronted with someone panhandling or an official soliciting for donations. How do you um, keep an open heart and not donate? It seems to, for me, it impacts on me. I don't feel so good about myself. It's hard to make eye contact. Even though I feel good about my choices of giving, mm -hmm. in this situation, it's, I'm not choosing to participate. Yeah. Well, if you feel that you have to say something, you'd say, um, <laughs> I've given at the office. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid I don't have enough to give. I mean, you, it's your choice. How much do you want to give? And, and if you're feeling pressured by the person, there's no need, you have no obligation to give under their pressure. But you can look them in the eye and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have enough to give. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I've tried to do is simplify my life and have less possessions. Um, so could you maybe tell me, how do, you, uh, how do you respond when you get unwanted gifts that are, uh, that are you know, when I'm trying to get rid of all the stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you say, thank you very much. <laughs> well, the, the concern was that, you know, and then they come by and it's not there, you know? Uh, that kind of that kind of thing. That, you know, kind, that kind of, of gift con gift patrol should not be encouraged. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking of you know the the example you gave us a doorstop. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I I you know when when I, we got married, you know, somebody gave us this, this really what we thought was this really atrocious gift, you know, and so we turned it in and you know and uh, used it to buy three little things, you know, we needed. And they came over, you know, and they said, oh, where is it, you know, and they had, and we didn't realize that they had so much joy in picking out that gift for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, my husband just said, well, there, there, there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another alternative is to, is to pass on the, the gift to someone else. Pass on the gift. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then if they ask about where is it, say, well, we we'll hope that you were, you know, we hope that you enjoy the fact that we wanted to be generous too. And so we thought this was a really nice thing to give away, and so we you know, felt it was an... 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't tell them you thought it was garbage. I mean, <laughs> we thought there was someone who might appreciate it even more than we did, so we passed it on. We were talking about this topic a couple months back in Laguna Beach, and one woman during the discussion came to the realization that she was not a very gracious gift receiver. Because she said, you know, I've always wondered why it is that when I receive a gift, people would always say, well, if you don't really want it, you can do something else with it or whatever. And she said, and I began to realize that maybe I'm, you know, radiating that attitude in the act of receiving because I feel uncomfortable about receiving gifts. And if you want to be a generous person, this is one of the things you've got to learn is how to be gracious in accepting a gift as a, you know, as a gift to the donor, whoever's giving it to you. Miss Manners has a lot of good advice on, <laughs> <laughs> on how to deal with this issue. Question over here. Okay. Uh, I actually had uh, two questions. So first of all, if I understood what you said, um, here at IMC there's a tradition that if people are so motivated that they leave uh, Donna for the speakers, but it would seem that uh, maybe a better way to do that is to have some sort of annual gift that is then distributed, let's say, uniformly over the year or weekly before you know what the speaker is going to say because maybe someone like you who's quite motivational and stimulating would get a lot of Donna, but maybe another speaker that comes who, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't resonate uh, the same sense of giving because you're sort of responding to what the person said as opposed to just giving to whoever comes by. Uh, the other uh, comment I wanted to make was kind of back to the gift thing. There was on NPR, there was a very interesting uh, talk I heard once about this person that tried to live without ever saying any white lies. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions was sort of similar to that, like someone invites you over and you go over and it's just a horrible meal and you did bad conversation, you just didn't want anything to do with them. So, but they call again because somehow they wanted to continue the relationship. And so what do you say? without lying. And so this person just simply said that um, he didn't think it was a white... He, he tried to say it nicely, but to say, you know, what, what he needed to say, which was he only has so much time to spend with the, his current friends, and he feels that they would be... He wouldn't be giving them enough service to have a new friend come into his life, and so therefore he'll just regretfully have to say at this time he just doesn't have enough time to do that. Um, so it, it's very uh, interesting on how one, because I would think your comment before was sort of humorous, but actually that's not coming from a genuine place. Okay. And, I, and I you kind of basically thing. have to say nicely, like, we appreciate the gift, but it had no use for us, and so we could use this for something else. And maybe that's just, you have to be honest with them. Or something. Not that honest. Um, <laughs> I think that the best thing was say there was someone we thought would appreciate it even more. But in this case, they, they didn't give it to somebody else. Well, they should have. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe they should give it to you. No. no, no. <laughs> Although there are a lot of things at the monastery that I feel were given to us for that reason, yes. Um, <laughs> hand over here. I wonder if you can help me learn how to give the gift of more patience. I'm a mother of seven-year-old twins, and I keep hitting the wall on that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, one way of developing patience is not to focus on how much you're suffering right now. And not to focus on how much, how long these seven-year-old twins have been with you. <laughs> and how much longer it's going to be before. Because <laughs> if you carry that narrative around, it weighs you down. So drop the narrative about how long has this been going on. Because you're weighing yourself down with the past at that moment and your anticipation, oh my gosh, twins until they're 21, how am I going to survive this? <laughs> but you, know, you take it one day at a time and then you focus on, well, where are my sources of strength now? And you focus on that. And this is one way in which meditation can be a gift to other people as you're building up, you know, a stronger attitude inside, then you're more resilient when you're dealing with the, you know, the umpteenth time that they ask you for something, or whatever the issue is. So focus on where your sources of strength are, rather than focusing on you know where the the irritants and where the, the oppressive things are in your present moment. Several years back, someone asked me when I was in Thailand what was the most difficult thing to adjust to as a monk, and I really had to think for a long time, and then I realized that that was the that was the key to adjusting, was, was not focusing on how difficult it is to adjust. Okay, focusing instead on, okay, where are, the, where are the sources of strength right now? Let's focus on that. So you're not feeling oppressed. You said you have to choose carefully the person you give to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the recipient you, you give to the person that you don't necessarily know, and sometimes through the period of time, you decide if it's worth or not. Mm -hmm. So, and with respect to the notion of time, apparently sometimes you disregard that notion of time. So, what are kind of the elements you will take in consideration to decide to whom you are going to give? Okay, this, is one, this is one of the times when time is a useful thing to think about. Yeah, and in that respect, in our example, time kind seems to be relevant for her. So sometimes it's relevant and sometimes it's not. Right. So I'm sure you have other elements that you can use mm -hmm. to define to whom you are going to give your gift. Mm -hmm. So it's um, looking at their past behavior. Is this person has this person behaving in such a way that I would really feel gratified giving a gift to continue support the continuation of that behavior. So it's a pattern. Is it the pattern? That you, you look see? at the pattern, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, you don't want to be too calculating in saying, well, I'm only going to give gifts to people that I really admire. Because sometimes, you know, there's a moment we just, uh, this is somebody I really feel inspired to give to. You want to give, well, go ahead, give something there too. You said it's time, sometimes you said people are not, you cannot give them at the right time because they cannot receive it. They won't appreciate it. However, with time, even 10, 15 years later, you see they are evolving and then you see, yes, it's the right time to give now. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. There's a lot to take into consideration, but it's purely up to you. you know, there's, there's no shoulds in this matter. Um, sometimes you feel that you, you, if, you, if you wait to give something, you may die before you get around <laughs> to the right circumstances. So you, might, you know, so you say, okay, with that thought in mind, I want to give now. 
In other cases, you say, okay, I'm not ready to give quite what I want to give yet, but I'm going to start saving up. And that's, that's fine, too. This is why there's so much freedom in the area of giving, because it really is a personal choice, and it's where you feel most gratified and that you're, do, you're doing the right thing. And it's teaching you to have your own sense of judgment, to develop your own sense of judgment around this. There's a question over here. Uh, yes, um, not, a, not a question, but a comment that I thought of when you were talking about the twins, and that is, uh, it comes from Adlerian psychology. You talked a lot yesterday about um, Freudian, but Adler was a contemporary, and he would say, um, look at the person and see what they need at the moment for their best growth and development. So, um, that, in that way, you have to pull yourself back a bit, and I guess the the story or whatever you I've forgotten what the word you called um, you told her she had to drop the narrative, narrative. narrative yeah. yeah so it when you look at someone and think about what they need at a moment to help them mm-hmm. um, I guess that's what's happening you're dropping back and you're not getting involved in your narrative but mm-hmm. seeing that person and kind of you have to use your had to think about what would be best for them. Right. And seven years old is a good time to teach the kids how to start cleaning up around the house. <laughs> <laughs> teach them some generosity, too. <laughs> and to respect your boundaries. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> is this, we're running out of time? Okay. Well, thank you for your attention today. Hope this has been helpful. <laughs>